This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, the Grape Nut shares her celebration of Beaujolais Nouveau Day. All of France and in many other parts of the world, they celebrate this day. This wine is recognized as the wine that you use to celebrate. There's nobody else that has a 2023 wine on the market right now. Also, local Brussels sprouts are appearing on many holiday tables. They are really cool looking plants. It's a stalk growing up. Coming off that stalk, you have big blue-green leaves to about chest high, which is really cool, especially when kids stand next to them and you see how big these plants are. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, December 4th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. The following represents the views of the speakers and not necessarily those of KCBX. KCBX welcomes the voices of those with divergent views. We're starting with a conversation about an upcoming event, Slow Pal Fest, billed as, quote, a community space to learn, to share, and connect as we center local Palestinian voices in sharing their stories and offer opportunities to learn about Palestinian history from experts in academia. The event is planned for December 9th at 1 o'clock in San Luis Obispo at a location to be determined. The organizers of the event spoke with KCBX's Brian Reynolds. Today we are joined by two community leaders, Sandra Sarouf, who's a community member, cultural worker and educator, and Dr. Ashraf Tubele, who's a community member and a professor. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Uh, Well, our main purpose today is to talk about an upcoming event on December 9th in the afternoon, 1 to 5, location to be determined, called the Slow Pal Fest. It'll be a free event with uh, local experts speaking, uh, audience participation, food and music. Sandra, could you talk a little bit about yourself uh, and sort of how you got here uh, to this moment? Yeah, well, thanks for having us and wanting to talk about this event that's happening on December 9th. Um, I'm first and foremost a community member and a cultural worker working at the intersection of culture, art, and justice to build bridges across differences, to promote peace, to promote dialogue, to create spaces of belonging. And, you know, I've personally been devastated along with many community members about what's been happening in Gaza and the Middle East and the greater region. And with things changing daily, it's really important that we are educating the community and talking to the community about what's going on and part of the reason why a coalition of us have come together to create this event. Uh, Dr. Tubele, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, so uh, so for me, uh, this is an event that uh, actually we need for the community here, for the larger community as well, uh, to fix uh, or kind of to get straight some uh, misperceptions that people might have. And we will try to address some of these misperceptions at, at the uh, event. But uh, basically, uh, I'm thinking we have like three major ones. Many people associate the resistance or like talk about the resistance being terrorism, which is uh, not really the case. It's like resistance in international law is granted to people uh, under occupation. Uh, so that is the first misperception out there. And then we have another one that Congress just passed a new law, a new kind of recycled law, I would say, uh, about Zionism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism being kind of equal and about also 
kind of entails, I think, you know, like uh, calling for Palestinian freedom, being uh, anti-Zionist or being anti-Semite, which is not true. It is not true because we have, uh, among us, we have uh, large groups of uh, Jewish people also advocating for uh, the liberation of Palestine and the freedom of Palestinians and also for the end of apartheid and, and the stop of the genocide that is happening, ethnic cleansing that has been happening also in the West Bank, and now genocide happening in Gaza. Uh, so that's another big uh, perception that people have out there, that uh, if you call for uh, Palestinian freedom, then you are anti-Semite uh, or whatever, you know, like, yeah, you're pro-terrorism, etc., so we're trying kind of also to fix that and get uh, the record straight. And then the, the, the last thing, uh, we're calling for a permanent ceasefire. And permanent ceasefire is, is the only way to go. And uh, if, if we don't really achieve that, and if the U.S. does not really push for that, then we're going to just be stuck in this cycle of violence forever. And we've seen this. And, uh, and and the U.S. is supporting Israel with basically all they all, all they're asking for in terms of weapons, money, uh, political, diplomatic uh, support, and that's not really leading to anything. It's it's just it's getting us uh, like caught into this uh, vicious uh, circle of violence and uh, hatred and. And continuing the war in Gaza and continuing, and I would not even call it a war. It's more like a genocide because we don't really, there's no symmetry uh, there. But like, there's no proportionality in, in what's happening. Right. I, I understand. And, and these are super important issues. I, I want to inject a little bit of my background into this. I was the county library director here for 20 years, and we had many activities in where we brought people together to talk about issues, some of them quite thorny, like crime or. Um, problems with youth and drug addiction, a variety of things. And what I discovered is that most people, most of the time, there's a huge amount of consensus uh, among them, not only on what the issues are, but the priorities in which they should be handled and uh, mitigated. But uh, what's missing a lot uh, today, uh, and I, maybe part of it is over-dependence on the Internet, which is generally speaking a monologue. It's a person posting their feelings on whatever the issue of the day is. It's not a dialogue where two people are discussing these things in real time, hopefully face-to-face, in harmony and and with courtesy. And so your uh, forum that's coming up uh, is the ability of uh, community members of whatever stripe, political or ethnic, to get together in real time as friends and neighbors and have a dialogue about these important issues, not um, anonymous, not uh, a monologue. And uh, I think part of what we're doing today is uh, helping people understand that a dialogue is necessary. And of course, important things are difficult to talk about sometimes. We all know that. I noticed, Sandra, that the event will be divided up into two categories, uh, local voices and then more of a historical perspective. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. And and if I could read, we invite people to come to this event with open hearts and open minds as we center local Palestinian voices, which is going to be the first session of the event. Community members that are Palestinian will share their stories, will share their experiences, um, and we will center those voices, which are often silenced in the mass media. And we'll also have a doctor, an ER doctor, who spent a year in Gaza sharing her perspectives in being there and, and what she saw and what she learned. So we feel 
this session's very important for uplifting and centering those voices and while at the same time connecting with community members because if we can connect, if we can have that dialogue, if we can see each other as humans, then that is the first step in moving forward. And, and sadly, you know, Palestinians have been continually dehumanized in the media. And so this is a part of let's connect, let's meet, let's learn, and let's be open to maybe unlearning what, what we've learned through our history books or through the media. I believe you told me earlier, uh, Sandra, that the format is one of discussion, not just among experts, but rather with each other. It won't be theater-style seating in the location. It'll be uh, tables, what you used to call talk tables, where people themselves can talk among each other as well as uh, speak uh, on a microphone to the group. Is that correct? Yeah, well, and that's what we're striving for. Truthfully, we've had a little difficulty in finding a location with the capacity because often public spaces tell us that, well, this is just one-sided and we need to create a series. And it's just not true. We want to connect. We want to inform and we want to center voices. So our goal is to have as much dialogue as possible while at the same time, we have um, two professors coming that are experts in the field that will offer this historical narrative to the community. So there will be some of that learning and lecturing. But with that, there will be opportunities for reflection on, well, wow, what have I just learned that I didn't know before? What do I know and what don't I know and what do I need to know um, in that process? And we also wanted to add a cultural element to the event and part of that PalFest theme, right, of food and music and dance because we all might eat hummus or what many people call hummus here and not connect it to the people that make the hummus or where it is originated from. So we're having community members that are going to prepare Palestinian dishes, um, which I'm personally really excited about because one musachin, which is delicious, and we're going to be sharing food together. But we're also asking people, but with that gateway of entry into understanding differences through food and music and culture, we're asking for a deepening and an opening to understand the people and the community and to just be open to that unlearning that might happen. Will there be guidance or suggestions on the part of the organizers for people who attend to follow up at a later date, how they can find out more information, go deeper into some of the topics, or perhaps become personally involved in some of the activities. Yeah, one more thing that we're also sharing on the flyer for the event is a resources guide that people can access just with their phones, and that should give them some uh, some more uh, like detailed information and more uh, more background on how we got here and what is going on and how to get. Uh, more insights of all the uh, the aspects of these of the Palestinian uh, sufferings and the uh, the life uh, like the everyday life under the occupation. Yeah, and that but, resource guide has primary sources on there, so I definitely encourage when you register to really look at that resource guide to to be more knowledgeable. What I hear you both saying is that it would be cool if people who are interested in attending could do it early to register early so that. They have access to some of the thoughts and the materials and become uh, probably would help them get more out of the event if they did some homework ahead of time. Yeah, sure. I think that's that's a great idea, actually. And and for people, yeah, when when they uh, when they register early, first they uh, they get because as Sandra mentioned before, uh, the uh, the like the numbers that we can host are limited and. Uh, 
and we have seen lots of uh, of popularity, lots lots of people signing up for the event. So yeah, by signing up early, then they have access to the resources, and then they can also prepare if they want to read some of the uh, documents provided or like get some like more uh, insights on some of the aspects that we would, that we will be discussing. Then then that resource guide is really there to help. For those that want more information and to contact a, a person who can maybe reply, there's an email at slopal.solidarity at gmail.com. That's S-L-O-P-A-L dot solidarity at gmail.com. Dr. Tubele, what do you think some of the themes will be in Section 2, which is entitled, I'm looking here at the poster, Debunking the Dominant Historical Narrative. What do you think uh, at least one or two of the themes might be uh, for that part? Uh, yeah, so I think um, a main point that we're trying to get across here is that Palestine was not really a desert and bare land, and some of the people that, uh, well, some of the Zionist pioneers have tried kind of to present to get people's sympathy about the, like, or for the uh, Zionist movement. Yeah, this is an empty land, so you, you can just go colonize, build, uh, make prosperous, etc. So this is not true, and and we have seen this uh, in, in documents and uh, publications even, like coming from Israel itself and from Israeli historians themselves documenting that the creation of Israel, which was a Western endeavor, uh, really displaced another population, the indigenous population that were living there. So I think this is, this is going to be one big, one big uh, takeaway from, uh, from the second session. And, and then also, like, we will be shedding light on how Israel itself was created. So the years before, the years that led to that, but also uh, 1948 and uh, what happened back then and, uh, and, and what happened uh, right after that. And also what, what has been going on in, in Palestine since then, since 1948. Basically, we have been seeing Palestinians being pushed uh, to the corner uh, more and more, especially in 1967, when like the uh, the portions that were not occupied back in 1948 now were uh, occupied by force by Israel uh, in that war, and and then since that time, uh, colonial settler uh, movement has been accelerating and and encroaching every day on more Palestinian land, putting those Palestinians in uh, in the corner and punishing them with. Uh, with the apartheid system, uh, also like as we see today in Gaza, like uh, bombarding them constantly, pushing them to leave. People in in Jerusalem, for example, losing their houses. People also losing their uh, not just especially in Jerusalem, not just their houses, but also their right to live in the city. And that has been a constant uh, policy by Israel since they occupied East Jerusalem back. In 1967, so we, we want to shed some light on uh, all that the background, you know, context that people don't really hear in the mainstream media, and uh, like uh, which try like the media they, they just try to depict this as as a political conflict between Israel defending itself and Palestinians who are the aggressors, which in in real life it is the other way around. One of the uh, themes that the pundits I listened to have been talking about is before we react to the horrific events of October 7th, we understand that that just didn't come out of thin air, that there's a history behind it. And so where do you begin 
is it 1967, 1948, World War I, when the Ottoman Empire was being carved up by the victorious allies, or even further back in history. So mm-hmm. I, to me, that where do you begin encourages uh, attention to the, a dialogue that needs to happen, that there's nothing important that can be resolved when it's just one side or one person speaking. We need to hear all sides. Also, I think it's important to use words correctly, in my view, and I was talking to Sandra about it. In fact, I discussed this with a local rabbi to be concerned with the policies of a nation state like Israel doesn't conflate with being anti-Jewish religion. It's just not the same. And of course, most of the people who live in that portion of the Eastern Mediterranean are, are Semitic. So it's not, uh, to, even to use the word anti-Semite is uh, at best inaccurate. Yeah, Correct. thanks for bringing that up. That's very misleading, yes. So important. What other things do people need to know uh, as we begin to wrap up, Sandra? To join us on December 9th to register um, at Slow Pal Fest through Eventbrite. There's going to be music by Dr. Ken Habib through the Air Music Ensemble. And to join us in, in centering Palestinian voices, in learning, in listening, in connecting, and to open our hearts and minds and to center our humanity in this process. And once we start thinking, oh, this side or that side, and it's complex, what's complex is a psychological undoing that has to happen with the simplicity is millions of people are being displaced, thousands are being killed, and it needs to stop. And, and I ask everyone to join us in that centering humanity in moving forward. I notice on the f- flyer for the Slow Pal Fest, there's a couple of QR codes. People who are interested, will they find those on the website also? No, they'll find that on the flyer on social media. Um, you know, we've had a lot of support in community members posting this event. But the best way is if they go onto Eventbrite and they search Slow Pal Fest. That's e- E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E. Yes, thank you. And they search Slow Pal Fest, they'll find the event. Or they can also email us at slowpal.solidarity at gmail.com. Thank you. And one more time, the uh, RSVP under Eventbrite is Slow Palfest, S-L-O-P-A-L-F-E-S-T. Thank you so much, Sandra Sarouf, Dr. Ashraf Tubele, for your participation today with your upcoming event on December 9th in the afternoon with food and music free to the public and location to be announced soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. The previous program represents the views of the speakers and not necessarily those of KCBX. KCBX welcomes the voices of those with divergent views. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangerman. Up next, Cal Poly lecturer Caleb Nichols has been a musician for more than 20 years and has released a new album. KCBX's Melanie Sen has their profile. Caleb Nichols, a queer poet and indie rock musician, is on a roll. In addition to a recent book of poems, they've just released a new album with Kill Rock Stars. On this cool San Luis Obispo evening, we're in Nichols' backyard, talking at a picnic table. They've just finished teaching at Cal Poly for the day, and are taking time away from grading essays to speak with me. I have um, 55 more essays to grade. Nichols sees their artistic life in two different stages. The first was from their teens to late 20s, playing and recording music and touring with bands. They were a bassist for Port O'Brien and lead singer of the Bloody Heads. Then I took a long break. Like, I stopped playing music in any real way, a professional way, 
I didn't replace it with anything other than work. They became a librarian and, more importantly, started therapy to deal with past trauma, which was making a creative life nearly impossible, Nichols says. To be an artist, you have to be uncertain. And you have to be really comfortable with that. And that is really difficult for people to do who have really bad trauma and PTSD, because what do you want? You just want certainty. The album Nichols released in October, Let's Look Back, has a song that directly addresses the source of that trauma. The song, The Absolute Boy, is deceptively catchy. Someone commented on the YouTube video, fun to dance to, and the thing is, it is. But the lyrics talk about the abuse Nichols suffered at the hands of their father, the you in the song. I asked Nichols about the line about being locked inside a cage. Their dad was in prison for a long time, Nichols says. And the idea was like he put himself there because he was abused. So it's about the cycle. But then I realized at a certain point, it's also about the cage that I put around myself to avoid fear and uncertainty, as we were talking about before. The fact that Nichols is expressing that pain through music makes sense. From a young age, music meant everything to them. And I used to have this little pink boombox, and and it was when I was being like horrifically abused. And I would put on my Beach Boys Surfer Girl tape. I'd have to play it really quietly, and I didn't have headphones. So I would press it against my ear as hard as I could. Like I wanted to be in the sound. You know, I wanted to be out of my body. Music was a refuge. But what brought Nichols back to it for this second creative stage was studying for a master's degree in literature at Cal Poly. Studying the British Romantics made them want to write their own poems. It did something to my brain. It was like, remember how you used to feel about art. And I was shocked that I could still feel that way. And then I was really shocked that it could actually alter my life, that art can still do that. Like it put me on a whole different trajectory. Nichols says when they're a poet, they're able to feel joy from almost nothing, like a transfiguration. The song Limb from the album is a song about letting poetry drive your life, even if it's counterintuitive at their age, Nichols says. And I want my life to be a poem, and I want my poem to ring true. The song is about liminality, and I'm super proud of having been able to use the word liminal in a pop song. I think that I should get a, a Grammy for that. Lim also touches on the idea of being uncertain about one's gender, of allowing yourself to be in transition. I'm in the middle, in the space I'm, I'm a non-binary queer person. That's a new thing for me. Nichols is exploring new territory, mentally, emotionally, physically. They've even been working on a PhD and left their husband and pets at home for the greater part of last year to study in Bangor University in North Wales. I've been pushing into trying to feel something more and to feel truth and to like really not just let my life go by. I don't want to do that. And that push for feeling and truth is at the heart of Nichols's second artistic stage. And it has yielded one hell of an album. For KCBX, I'm Melanie Sen.
The KCBX Arts Beat is made possible by a grant from the Community Foundation, San Luis Obispo County. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, the grape nut Betsy Nash and sommelier Ali Rush recently joined wine enthusiasts worldwide in tasting the very first juice of the 2023 vintage. You're listening to The Grape Nut, and my guest is Allie Rush. We're here at the Wine Sneak, and she's teaching several of us everything there is to know about this remarkable wine, Beaujolais Nouveau. And that's the sound they're hearing all over France today on Beaujolais Nouveau Day. It is the celebration of the culmination of the harvest in France, and I wish I was there right now. Have you ever been there in Paris on this day? I have never been on the day of the Nouveau, the celebration, but I have seen lots of videos, and I have definitely done my part to celebrate with them in spirit. Now, how hard is it to get Beaujolais Nouveau here on the Central Coast? You know, it's been a little challenging the last few years. In fact, last year, we didn't even get it in time, which was a real bummer because it definitely is something that is very specific to this day, the third Thursday in November, which truly is when all the vignerons around France, but obviously mainly in the Nouveau region, celebrate with the very first wine of the vintage. So we have the very first wine around the world, the 2023 Beaujolais Nouveau. It's the Red Rosé. And this is on purpose that it is not aged. They used to have races to get it to Paris. Yes. In fact, it's a very big deal to to get it distributed around not only France, but obviously the world, which is why it has been so challenging in years past. But yes, it's air freighted. However, it can get there fast enough so that everybody can can celebrate one more year, one more harvest, one more natural phenomenon. Mother Nature is over and we get to taste for the first time the results of of the vintage. Love it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So we're tasting the first of the 2023 vintage. I get that. Does it tell us anything, having this Beaujolais Nouveau, this young, young wine, does it tell us anything about the entire 2023 vintage? Absolutely. It tells us ripeness. It tells us acidity. It tells us everything that we would get out of any other wine, aside from, you know, wines that have oak on them and that have been manipulated a little bit more. This is a purest form. That's why I say it's the rosé of red wine. It's the purest form of the first grapes to be harvested. It's obviously made differently. It's made using the carbonic maceration method, which is why you get that bright bing pop, fresh fruit, cherry, Zaz, but it still it gives you a, an idea about the fruit, so the ripeness of the, of the warmth of the vintage, the climate of the vintage, um, as well as the acidity, which are two of the most important components to the structure of a wine. So it really, before it's been manipulated by the winemaker and the oak and all of the or the concrete or whatever it's going to be in, this is it. So you're going to tell us what we're tasting for tonight, right? Absolutely. I'm going to taste it alongside you guys. I I'm ex- I'm, can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. And we're going to compare it as well to last year's vintage of Beaujolais Nouveau. So we all be have a little clue there. Oh, this will be fun. 
So there was a producer, and they put theirs in plastic bottles. It became such a big party. They would chug it and shatter the glasses everywhere and stuff like that. So they decided to put them in, like, those big 750 Pellegrino bottles, and people couldn't break them. But truly, it's kind of sad if you think about it, because the region of Beaujolais is a beautiful serious wine producing region in France, as we've talked about many times, you know, they don't tell you what the grape is in the bottle. They tell you what the region is. Nobody realizes that Gamay is a very serious grape that should be taken seriously, that makes beautiful wines that can be aged. The way that they get Nouveau and the way that they make it to be this very first wine of the harvest is made in this method called carbonic maceration, which really is what makes the Nouveau Nouveau. Um, and a lot of people are now starting to use carbonic maceration because it creates this unmistakably recognizable, bright, fruity bomb of a nose that is just fresh and beautiful. The color of this wine is absolutely beautiful. So carbonic maceration, what is it? The grapes are harvested, a little bit youthful, a little bit young, right? So that's why this wine has really bright, fresh acidity. Um, it's almost got a little snappiness to it on the palate. Grapes, they harvest them, they put them in a big vat, and then they seal the vat. So the air within the vat starts to heat up the grapes, and it naturally starts to heat up, and those grapes just burst. So they basically start to ferment from within, and then they explode. So they get very little exposure to their skins, which means they get little exposure to any harshness or tannin because these wines are not sold at a very high price point. These wines are meant to be drunk literally by the gallon. In fact, a lot of places, as I'm sure you can attest to, um, they bottle them in large bottles, and sometimes they even use a champagne top to stop them because some of them are still actually fermenting a little bit. So the carbonic maceration really is a unique thing. And again, you, we're seeing a lot more people do it. But the main thing with the Nouveau is that it truly is celebrating the harvest. It is the original wine made using this method, which was used because of its quickness to make. So all of France and in many other parts of the world, they celebrate this day. This wine is recognized universally, I would say, as the wine that you use to celebrate. There's nobody else that has a 2023 wine on the market right now. And the French just guzzled that yesterday. And then it's done. Then they're like, let's sell it to the dumb Americans. Gamay is, to me, definitely another alternative to Pinot Noir. I think it's a beautiful grape that has similar characteristics. And when we get to, you know, this is like, this is like your everyday drinking, beautiful, bright, fresh, fruity Pinot Noir. Um, when we get to the Cru Beaujolais, it's a little bit more serious. It's going to have a little bit more tannin. It can age. But unfortunately, most people don't know that. They just think Beaujolais. Nouveau it's that stuff that everybody drinks for Thanksgiving dinner. It can't be any good. By rule of thumb, this is not a wine that you want to throw in your cellar. This is a wine that you're going to want to drink within a calendar year. You're listening to The Grape Nut, and my guest is Allie Rush. We're here at the Wine Sneak, and she's teaching several of us everything there is to know about this remarkable wine, Beaujolais Nouveau. It was delivered yesterday, and we were told very specifically to not touch it. It's taboo until today. In France, super duper bad luck. Unless you're the winemaker tasting it out of the barrel before it goes in the bottle, you do not drink it. 
This is the Morgan. The most important thing to them is what they put largest on the label. So it's not the producer. It's going to have a little bit more earthiness, a little bit more of a serious, well, quite a bit more of a serious wine. It's still, though, what I want everybody to smell on the nose is that unmistakable Gamay. That is the grape of Gamay. And you can see how Gamay can go from being nouveau and having this bright, really bing cherry is the best way to describe it, but almost a candied characteristic. Like I said, that Jolly Rancher, watermelony, kind of crazy bubblegum kind of thing. It still kind of has that, but then it has all these underlying earthiness to it. So the Beaujolais region being further south, quite a bit further south, the Gamay actually has a chance to get ripe. When you're drinking a more youthful Gamay or Beaujolais, you can actually really, you can enjoy it quite younger than you could a really nice burgundy. And the other thing that I love about Beaujolais is the price point is absolutely outstanding. So that's a huge selling point to me. After the class with Allie at the Wine Sneak, I ran into a friend who was sitting with a friend who I'm going to have now introduce himself. Hi, I, my name is Mike Susank, and I was actually in Paris on Beaujolais Day, 1992. So November 92, 31 years ago. Well, was it a bash like I hear it was? Well, I was a student, and at the time, I'm, my recollection of it was I was wandering home from classes, and at a much greater rate than normal, the streets were kind of filled with mostly young people with bottles in their hands, yeah. and there just seemed to be a lot of drinking, and I knew just enough about Paris, French history to know that this is not one of the big holidays. Yeah. And so I was, as an American, mystified by this, and I wandered into my normal kind of restaurant that was around the corner from where I was living, and and he said, well, maybe you'll see us at Beaujolais, or, and, you know, it's like, uh, and I'm like, ah, uh, what? He's like, well, it's the new Beaujolais, they opened the new Beaujolais, and I'm like, oh, well, there you go. Pour it up. Yeah, absolutely. So some. let's let's have some Beaujolais. <laughs> Well, it, I had no idea it was this big a deal. I knew that there was a race to Paris, and the whole idea was to get the Beaujolais Nouveau there as yep. soon as possible. All that kind of jazz. But I remember being in Paris when the Tour de France came through in 1974. That was a big deal. Mm -hmm. People lined up on the streets. Mm -hmm. They weren't all drinking. So I'm guessing, what, were you at Left Bank? Where, where were you hanging yeah, out? Yeah, this was, I, I lived uh, right in the 4th on the Left Bank. So it was definitely Boulevard Saint-Germain. Yes. Maubert Mutualité was the metro stop that I got off on. <laughs> so it was somewhere in the vicinity of that kind of left bank area wow. Wow. is where this was. And what were you studying? Uh, I was just doing a semester abroad. I was the, the person that we were sitting with tonight, uh, Steve and I were classmates at Claremont, Claremont McKenna. And oh, he did goodness. a semester abroad in Athens. I did a semester abroad in Paris. Little history, little language, little poli sci. I did take a wine class when I was down in Aix en Provence, which because was why great. wouldn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, so it was great. Just basically expanding my my very immature and uh, boxed in <laughs> horizons. What did you end up doing besides drinking some wonderful wines? Yes, I ended up teaching Catholic high school teacher, and uh, 28 years later. I'm now doing as little damage as I possibly can as an administrator. Yeah, yeah. mission mission college prep. Yes, well, yes. Uh, but I want to go back. I want to go back to what that celebration was like. Did you know at the time it was a big deal, and have you remembered it ever since, or just because we're here on 
Beaujolais Nouveau night in 2023 did it come back to you? Well, I didn't, I haven't celebrated it with regularity, but I will, I can absolutely say that one of the things I learned in my study abroad was that there is this wine release event. It's celebrated widely in France. It's, it's all about Beaujolais. And I've, I've never lost that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I can't say that I have, uh, uh, practiced that particular <laughs> faith regularly. Well, I remember hearing about it when I was first learning to drink wine. And and the way Allie described it tonight was that, well, this is the very, very first taste any of us will get of the 2023 vintage. Mm -hmm. It unadulterated, nothing. Just bring out the juice and drink mm -hmm. it. No oak, no, no nothing. No brilliance of the winemaker and just get to drink it as quickly as possible. And I knew part of that, but I didn't get the importance of the fact that this is the first taste of this vintage mm -hmm. that for the most part, we won't drink again until it's been released in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, uh, the person I lived with, the family I lived with who were lovely, um, he was kind of a stodgy older guy. And he says, well, you know, truthfully, it's, it's kind of garbage wine. <laughs> of course, that would be the, uh, the, the stodgy old uh, uh, opinion of it. But you know, it's it's a moment. It's it's yeah. like anything else. It's not just about the wine itself, but it's about who you're with and the moment in time. You know, we'll never drink the 2023 November 16th to 2023 will never happen again either. Yes. You know, so this moment gets captured, and that moment I had in in '92 would never happen again. Even if we tried to duplicate it, we could. I mean, that's what wine is. Yes. I think great for it. Well, and it's true because as an agriculture product, it's different mm -hmm. every time. Every, as every day goes by. As are we. Oh. As are we. Thank you for this. Oh, it's it my pleasure. Fun. So that's everything about Beaujolais Nouveau, or most of it. We'll come back next year and do some more. My thanks to Ellie Rush from 15C, my sommelier expert, and for the wine sneak. And thanks also to Mike Susank, who I just happened to run into. For issues and ideas, this is Betsy Nash, the grape nut, in the best job in the world. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, Playing with Food from the KCBX Archives. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. You may think you don't like Brussels sprouts, but the sprouts grown right here on the Central Coast might change your mind. <laughs> what are we going to do? I'm starving. Oh, I just remembered. We do have something to eat. Monica put something in our oven this morning. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my God, it's Brussels sprouts. That's worse than no food. Ha, <laughs> <laughs> ha, all you got was Monica's stinky Brussels sprouts. Stinky? Ah, those crazy friends on Friends. Their many Thanksgiving episodes express so much of what we experience in our own homes, including culturally ubiquitous foodstuffs. It's the holiday season. It's the holiday season, and what says the holidays better than Brussels sprouts? So many people hate them, yet they adorn every holiday table across the country. Brussels sprouts were brought to the United States in the 18th century via the French to Louisiana. Production shifted to California's central coast in the 1920s, where they enjoy the year-round cool temperatures and coastal fog just like we do. I've always loved Brussels sprouts, and I'm actually on record emphatically expressing my love for Brussels sprouts in a student-made video for a University of Chester documentary on Christmas dinner. Imagine my delight when I moved to San Luis Obispo and drove past Brussels 
sprouts fields almost every day. There is an endless supply of these cute tiny cabbages here on the Central Coast, and I'm going to help you fall in love with them or love them even more. My name is Nicole Lewis Brandau. I manage the office for our family farm here in Edna Valley, and the farm has always been Lewis Farms. Rick Lewis is my dad, and we've been farming for five generations here. Can you take me through the field? Absolutely. Let's tromp through the field. How long has this field been here? planted this back in May. So you'll find that Brussels sprouts are in the field for many months. They take quite a while to grow. So this is about 10 acres of Brussels sprouts. They're all the same height. They're all the same color. It's very uniform. Yes, it is. It is kind of like a sea of those blue-green leaves. It's really cool. They are really, really cool looking plants. If you've never seen how a Brussels sprout grows, it's a stalk growing up. Coming off that stalk, you have big blue-green leaves that create like this super cool canopy. And this field's still a little short, but they'll get up to about chest high, which is really cool, especially when kids stand next to them and you see how big these plants are. And what you've got are these tiny cabbages growing on the stalk when you look at it. And so many growers harvest with a machine where they take the entire stalk out at once and then they run it through the machine and it takes all the sprouts off. We actually harvest by hand, so it's kind of fun to see the bottom leaves disappear as we pick the bigger sprouts from the bottom and then the top stays intact and then we'll come back and do it again. And they end up being like this field of skeleton stalks at the end. Oh, wow, so you do this by hand. That's backbreaking work. It is. It has been a privilege to grow up alongside the men who have worked on our farm. Um, many of them have worked here my entire life, and they are the hardest working people I know. The sprouts are growing, and you can see these bigger ones. So this is closer to like a harvest size, that one and a half inch, one inch size. And these guys are still growing. The other size of marbles. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool to have the, the different sizes going from large to small at the top. And there's little tiny, 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 tiny little baby pea-sized Brussels sprouts. Yeah, and I like the top. It looks kind of like a cabbage flower, which is really neat. And my favorite thing about a Brussels sprout field is on a wet night. I mean, it was even still so wet last night. You can still see them, these drops of dew, like cartoon-like drops of dew gather on the leaves. And when you walk through, they will fall off and soak you. But <laughs> it's so fun. And so you can just see, like, look at these giant ones in here. You can see them at the bottom of the leaves with the sprouts collecting down here. You know, it's afternoon and that water's still there, which oh, yeah. I think is really kind of just a fun way of seeing how your food is in its natural state. Yeah, and how amazing nature is and how beautiful nature is, actually. Exactly. Yeah. When do you know the plant is past its useful life? Well, the sprouts will start to open up. Obviously, we wouldn't leave them here that long. And so we pick all the way up to the very top. And then once we've gotten every sprout that has a good shape on it, then it's done. So we are tilling it under and getting ready for our next crops. If you plant in late May and you do multiple harvests, how long is the harvest season for one particular stock? Because it's winter time, you know, my dad has this phrase, a day in July is a week in October. And so the growing time right now is much shorter. The nights are cooler. And so we have more time. We're not losing things in a day. And so we'll actually come through. And like I said, since we harvest by hand, we have a crew of maybe 10 or 12 harvesters coming through. And they'll each do a line at a time and they'll make several passes a day. And it'll take them a week or more to get through one planting of five acres. 
and then a few weeks later when those sprouts at the top where you can see like if you look at these you can see the ones on the bottom are three or four times as big as the ones on the top and so we'll harvest those larger ones first and then give these ones more time to grow and then come back in when we're ready so we maybe we'll harvest a first harvest on these five acres and then a first harvest on the next five acres and then come back and start over it's kind of a continual process. Absolutely. We plan our plantings and our harvest and everything so that we can continuously move through and come back if it is something that we harvest multiple times. But our plantings are made back to back so that we can finish one and move on to the next. One of my questions is, how can we be assured that when we peel back a leaf, there's not going to be a bug? You're not. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's just an inherent nature of the food, it is possible. I guess that's not a very popular answer. Because they obviously they're on the leaves. You can see that the bugs have eaten the leaves of the stalk. Yeah. But I've never come across a Brussels sprout that had a bug in it. I've never come across cabbage. They do have a tighter head that's going to limit their access. For us as a smaller grower, we will do a visual inspection. We keep a pretty close eye on our fields because pest invasion can cause problems pretty quickly. We don't want to lose this product. So pick one and show me how the pests do or don't get in. On the one we saw before, you saw that hole in the leaf and so maybe something burrowed through. Sometimes you can see aphids underneath the leaves. Luckily, we don't see them here. In other parts of other fields, certainly that is a reality that we as growers have to face. And so the reason you're not going to see bugs in your Brussels sprouts at the store is because they are inspected by us and then by packaging. And then when they get to the customer, they also inspect it and anything that did have pests in it would be rejected. You are doing your or quality control and quality assurance here in the field. Yeah, absolutely. If there are pests, then we have to leave it behind. And then there's also things we take into consideration, like how warm is it when we're harvesting? Is the product sitting in the sun? Do we need to get it in the shade? Do we need to ship it sooner in the day? Is it so hot that we can't ship it all? Because it just will not have the same shelf life it would on a more mild day like today. What I should do is I should go to the farmer's market or a U-Pick and get Brussels sprouts. Do you do you pick? We do not. Not for our Brussels sprouts, no. These are grown commercially. A huge emphasis on all farms right now is making sure we produce a product that is safe. And that means that we have measures in place to ensure that the field is basically secure. We actually have an entire plan for food security to make sure that the contamination and everything else. And so that means no trespassing, no, you know, all the things that are really terribly boring, but super important to making sure that our food supply is safe and secure. And so on our farm, we do have a U-Pick area in the fall that is a pumpkin patch, but that is not for commercial production. Whereas this is something that you'll see in Whole Foods now. Our Brussels sprouts could actually be in Whole Foods right now. So we're just a grower, we don't have a cooler. We pick them ourselves and harvest them and then we take them to Betteravia Farms and Bonnie Pack is actually the wholesale brand. Betteravia Farms is their farm branch. And then Bonnie Pack packages and sells our Brussels sprouts for us. I love Brussels sprouts. I've loved them ever since I was a child, which is kind of strange. Do you actually like Brussels sprouts that you grow? I do really, really love Brussels sprouts. I also grew up eating them and we had them every Thanksgiving and Christmas and I really like them. And then I never met anybody else who liked them until about 10 years ago when I started seeing them on restaurant menus. That's a weird thing. Explain this. So my history with this is 
I used to live in Britain where Brussels sprouts come out at Christmas and they boil them to death and they're disgusting. I'd come home every summer and one summer I came home and there were like crispy fried Brussels sprouts on an appetizer menu in a craft brewery. And I'm like, what's this? And then it just exploded and then it jumped over the pond and they're doing glazed Brussels sprouts as a bar appetizer. What happened? That's a great question. There's actually, I think, a few things that happened. I think chefs finally started to look at this amazing vegetable and learn how to prepare it in a way that tastes good. But there's also, we have to take another 10 years back and go back to the mid nineties. And a plant breeder in the Netherlands actually isolated the chemical in Brussels sprouts that gave them the bitter taste, which is why nobody likes them. And because you're eating them wrong, because you cooked them too much. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> But he actually isolated this bitter chemical, the compound in the Brussels sprout that gives it that flavor. And he went back to the heirloom varieties and they have hundreds and hundreds of varieties in these seed vaults and looked at which ones had a lower instance of that chemical and then crossbred it with more modern varieties that give a higher yield. And they actually improved the flavor of Brussels sprouts. That's amazing. That's amazing. So do they taste different than they did when you were a kid? Well, I cook them better <laughs> than my parents did. <laughs> I still like them the way I grew up eating them. I did not have a sophisticated enough palate as a child to recognize those notes, but it's just fascinating to see how a vegetable has gone from a total pariah to one of the trendiest items on a holiday plate. How healthy are they? Very. Like any other fresh vegetable, you want to incorporate lots of colors into your diet, lots of varieties of foods. They have a high vitamin content, high fiber content. They're going to make you feel full. It's a sustaining fulfillment and a good thing to put in your body. You have had a lifetime of Brussels sprouts and you say you cook them better than your parents. <laughs> well, I did, just the way we cook them has evolved. So when I was a child, when we would have, my dad still says the same thing. He still makes them the same way every Thanksgiving and Christmas. We steam them briefly till they're al dente. That's so important. Al dente means to the tooth, so you are cooking them so that they're just tender enough to eat, but they still have a little bit of a crunch to them. And when you say, oh my gosh, the smell of Brussels sprouts, that's overcooked Brussels sprouts. Fresh Brussels sprouts at the peak of freshness, not overcooked, have an incredible flavor. So when I grew up, backtrack, my dad would look around at everybody and say, we have 10 guests for Christmas dinner. He says, okay, so how many Brussels sprouts? One per person. And we would take one per person because that's all anybody would eat. <laughs> I do six per person because that compensates for the people who like Brussels sprouts and the people who don't. Yeah, it's definitely much different now, but it was it was always funny. And then at, at the end of dinner, there would always be one left over. He says, see, we cook too many. But we would steam them briefly until they're al dente, a little butter, a little fresh shave of Parmesan, and a little salt. And it is a really nice flavor. The way I cook them now is very different. I cook them lots of different ways. I still steam them sometimes. Mostly I pan roast them, which I really enjoy. My favorite way right now is I have them, pan roast them, toss them in a homemade lemon honey vinaigrette, and then I do a smear of goat cheese on a plate, and I load my hot toss Brussels sprouts on top of there, and then I do maybe a little drizzle of honey, and the tangy goat cheese with the sweetness of the honey and the Brussels sprouts is really, really good with pancetta or bacon, always a winner. You're right. Everything with bacon tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> so many different ways to make them. I've been reading about how people are doing them like chips. So they peel the leaves back and fry the leaves and then make like a Brussels sprout chip, which I'm really anxious to try. 
can you eat the leaves? Because like I was watching a film about food waste. It was kind of focusing on the production side instead of the consumer side. And they said, for example, you don't have to throw away these cauliflower greens. You can eat them. Can you eat Brussels sprout greens? I'm sure you could. I have never done that. My only hesitation would be is because they grow for so long on the outside and they're protecting the plant. They're here for so long. I don't know how tender they would be, but cooked, I'm sure they would be delicious. I'm curious to know more about that. Maybe we should do an experiment. My show is called playing with food. My favorite things, science and eating. Is it possible that I could take a few home with me and fool around with them and see what I come up with? Absolutely. We're going to pick some here. How do you, how should we choose how to pick these? Uh, I'm looking for ones that aren't damaged. So I'm looking for ones that have been chewed on by a bug maybe. Okay. So I'm just looking for ones that are in good shape. And then you'll see the leaves at the bottom have started to yellow and brown. So I'm steering clear of those. How about one more? Sure. I'll check to make sure they're not poisonous like rhubarb leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely look that up. One of my new favorites is zucchini ribbons with spinach and mix them together and it kind of gives you a little bit of both. You know, how much sautéed spinach can one person eat? I can eat a lot. <laughs> Another but, vegetable I've liked since I was a child. Yeah, one thing, it doesn't bother me, but for my husband it's a lot to ask of him, but if I mix something else in there, then maybe it's a little bit more fun, a little more interesting, and you get a little bit of dimension on the plate and more nutrients and more variety. Thanks to Nicole, I went home with four large Brussels sprout leaves. Since playing with food is my hobby, I went straight into my kitchen to experiment with them. I have my friend Laura here with me today. Hi there. I was on a Brussels sprout farm this morning south of town, and I asked, can you do anything with Brussels sprout leaves? They're pretty cool. They have leaves all the way from the bottom to the top, however tall the stalk is. And I've got four leaves here. We're going to chop them up and saute them with onions and garlic, and then we're going to have a taste. I don't have any bacon. Well, that's okay. But I do have bacon fat. Oh, wow. So let's saute them in that. Yeah, great idea. And we already have some chicken going, so you can hear that going in the background. Let's just get started. I'm gonna chop them up right now. So did you have Brussels sprouts as a kid for Christmas? No, I didn't know it was a Christmas thing. <laughs> well, you lived uh, in Britain like I did. That's where we met. Yeah. And they have Brussels sprouts, you know, they start them in November. It's a big deal. Yeah, like, and nobody likes them, but they all have them all for Christmas. All have them. I think my mom tried them on us at some point, but we just hated them as kids. Hated them. And now that I've had them like roasted, they're quite, you know, they're pretty good. But what you're doing here is very interesting with the leaves. We throw the greens into the pan with the onions and the garlic, and I'm just gonna stir them around until they're soft. Do you want any spices or any herbs in there or anything? So should we just try them as natural as possible? a little bit of water. That will help them soften up a little bit faster. Our Brussels sprouts greens are done. Here's your little thing and here's mine. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, take a bite. Let's take a bite. That's nice. Mm. It's subtle. Mm -hmm. I think with Brussels sprouts we have this idea that it's going to taste a certain way, mm -hmm. but this is really subtle. Yeah, I like it. I like it like any other greens. Mm -hmm. And this is just like sauteed greens, except they have this subtle Brussels sprouts flavor. Mm -hmm. Would be better with bacon, would be better with dairy fat of some sort, you know, but to try it in its most basic form, 
we know what we can use it with. And it's in abundance south of San Luis Obispo. So all we need to do is ask Nicole for Brussels sprout leaves and we could eat for the rest of our lives because mm. each tree probably has 20 or 25 leaves on it. <laughs> like I think this should be a food source. I think we're on to something. Nicole, if you're listening, start harvesting, packaging, and selling the Brussels sprout leaves. Thanks for the gift. Speaking of gifts... You have an abundance of these. They come at the perfect time of year. Have you ever given somebody a bag of Brussels sprouts for Christmas gifts or birthday presents? I have given them as teacher gifts combined with a bottle of wine. But I think that giving fresh produce and sharing something that you make with somebody or you picked yourself is a really unique gift. I hope they appreciated it, but the wine helped. (laughs) What was their rea- like physical reaction when you handed them a bag of Brussels sprouts? I mean, well, she was a kindergarten teacher, and so she gets excited about everything. And so, <laughs> I mean, it felt like a five-year-old, like, oh my goodness, look at this macaroni necklace you made me. It's so beautiful. But I really do think that she enjoyed them. Because like I said, if you like to cook and you like to be in the kitchen, it's always fun to have something new. I may be a little biased because I went into this knowing that I already love Brussels sprouts. If this holiday exploration didn't entice you to give them just one more try, then perhaps nothing will. But that's okay. That means there's more Brussels sprouts for me. But I'll let Nicole take one more shot at convincing the world that this tiny cabbage deserves pride of place on your holiday table and your dinner plate. You are very comfortable with them, but I would encourage anyone to try them, to give them a try. I mean, people look at me like I'm crazy when we say we grow Brussels sprouts, but I think that they are a versatile and delicious side dish or even a main course. I'm not joking when I say if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you really probably have been eating them wrong. And to give them a try because they're so good. It's so simple, just a little olive oil, salt and pepper and a roast in the oven and that caramelization that comes from either a pan roast and a cast iron pan or in the oven. I mean, the flavor is just fantastic and a compliment to any meal. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. That was Playing with Food from the KCBX Archives. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.